Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from the Chief Evangelist and Vice President of Product Marketing at Corellium, an evangelist for pretty much this entire millennium. He's also served as Chief Evangelist for BlackBerry and a marketing technology and evangelism leader with companies like Silence, Citrix, and McAfee. Brian Robison, welcome to Chief Evangelist. Thank you very much, Ethan. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. We had, I personally had a lot of fun uh, on a call that we had in preparation for this one. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because you have such a unique depth of experience in the role. I think a lot of people think this is a new thing, uh, but the approach to sales, marketing, service, uh, et cetera, that we call evangelism and the way that that affects those functions um, is very well established. And I, I'm excited to learn from you today about that. Um, we're going to start, Brian, where we always do, uh, which is the most important job of a chief evangelist. What comes to mind for you? <laughs> well, I think the, the most important thing to realize is that we are all in sales, no matter what, whether you're carrying the quota, carrying the bag, everything we do is, is in sales. Um, that's our number one job is to, you know, our number one customer is our sales team. Uh, and we're, you know, we're their, we're their go-to for pretty much anything that they need, um, you know, beyond, you know, we don't get involved in like the POs and things like that and, and the negotiations. But as far as establishing value with whatever solution you're trying to sell, that's our number one goal. And our, and our number one customer is essentially our sales team. So uh, in your experience, especially in the spaces that you've been in, it's a, it's a bit of a technical sales role. Or what are some, of the, some, what are some other common names that someone might be familiar with around this function? Well, a lot of this um, actually kind of started in the 90s out of Intel. Um, and that's kind of where I got involved with it, with some people who had left Intel in the Portland, Oregon area. And I was working um, at that time with, uh, and this is going to date me a little bit, but I used to work with modems um, and worked with a company called Supra Modems that was based out of Vancouver, Washington. And I did tech support there for a while, but then I got involved in a role called technical marketing. Now, technical marketing is a pretty established role that you're going to find pretty much at any technical company um, or technology company. And really, it's a position that is, um, you know, you report up in through the marketing chain, but, but your job is to build technical assets, um, technical, you know, explanations, videos, demos, those kind of things. Um, but really it hones your craft in positioning very deep technical, you know, solutions or products, but in the way of trying to find where that customer is going to uh, how it's going to solve that customer's problem. So you basically are, a, you know, marketing is taking advantage essentially of your technical prowess and your knowledge of, of how technology works to turn that into messaging that helps customers decide what the heck to buy from you that will help their business or help their problem that they're having. Yeah, really fair. And I, I appreciate this mapping to the customer problem in particular. You also made me think, I mean, when I think about um, roles that I've seen here, obviously product marketing, which is part of the title that you carry today, um, I see a lot of that technical marketing in a product marketing function in general. So um, lots of different ways to talk about the same thing. But this evangelism language in particular... Um, how does that, what does that do for this function? So for example, you've worn this title very explicitly um, uh, more than once, uh, but you've been doing this work for a long time. Like, 
does it connote anything in particular either to the customer or to the sales team or to the marketing team? Um, what What is the word or the term or the concept of evangelism? Where does that separate from what people would know as technical marketing or product marketing? Yeah, I think I think the biggest area is, and and when you can, when like an evangelist becomes involved in a sales cycle, for example, um, similar to like when you might bring in a CTO type role, um, sometimes in the field we're we're kind of called field CTOs, things like that. A lot, lot of times the evangelists will report into the office of the CTO, things like that. But basically, you know, we are there not as a salesperson. So we're not trying to sell the customer something. We're not trying to, you know, be that part of the sale. We're more there to be kind of that trusted third-party advisor. I mean, obviously, you know, we're there with intent in mind to move the deal forward, but really we're there to make sure that the customer is successful with the solution or solutions and not really... You know, we don't, one of the things like, like I don't do, I don't get involved with the pricing and the packaging of the products. Um, in fact, I really don't even, most of the time, I don't even know what we sell our products for because that's not my job. That's the account manager's job or the salesperson's job to know and to negotiate it. My job is there to is, is to establish a technical win or a value proposition win and then you know, let the people who are good at the negotiation figure out what it's going to sell for. Um, but a lot of times, and in fact, most of the products that I have worked with, I just I don't even know what they cost. Um, it's just not part of what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to get over a certain dollar amount. I'm trying to make sure the customer gets is successful and meets their goals, and with whatever I need to put in place to make that happen. Really good. Do you feel like there's a part of what I hear in this, and I, I'm, I'm assigning this, you didn't say it, but um, part, part of what I'm hearing in this is that um, evangelism in this context is probably better for bigger ticket items um, where there is much more, it's, it's less transactional, it's more long term, there's uh, it's maybe a deeper solution. Um, inside an organization, less kind of surface level where there's probably flatter pricing. Is that fair uh, for me to discern from that? Yeah, it is. Um, it is more needed in businesses that have, you know, pretty technical solutions that they're trying to sell. It is not something that you're going to find in the consumer space. Um, however, like I said before, I started in technical marketing in the consumer space. Uh, you know, doing modems for Supra. And then we were bought by Diamond Multimedia, the video card guys, you know, back in the mid 90s. And I used to go to Comdex and shows like that. Um, so, you know, I had consumer experience um, with evangelism kind of at that technical marketing level, telling the stories, coming up with the value propositions, things like that. But really today in the modern world, it's more with the enterprise companies that are doing, you know, very deep, business to business sale, not business to consumer. Um, you really don't need that too much on the consumer side. You need it more on the on the enterprise side where you're working, you know, hand in hand with that customer to try to get that, you know, value across the table or, you know, help them with, you know, theoretical integrations or something like that where you're getting your hands in the tech in and in, in their tech and proposing, you know, integrated solutions, things like that. But we're also not really the hands-on people like the professional services people that will come in and actually then do those integrations and things like that. So we're much more, again, focused on the outcome of the, of the opportunity, not specifically the, you know, the, the actual details of how things get done or actually doing that work. But we're more of, of, again, we're pointing to that value and the outcome for the customer. Yeah, casting a vision, moving from the art of the possible to know this this is something we can do. Someone else is going to do it, but this yeah. is definitely in the realm of uh, doable. Um, bring us into your kind of day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter. How did you find Corellium? How did they find you? Well, it's an interesting uh, interesting thing. I, I have always um, sought out companies and products that are different in some way, shape, or form, or they change how people do things. Um, they, they have a, a much bigger impact than just 
you know, being something on a shelf somewhere that, you know, a widget that, that people just buy. So I've always really involved in my entire career. I've, I've always, I've only ever moved to a different company to, to go to something that had a better approach or a bigger solution or made more impact in the world. I mean, you know, you, you look at like my career through like um, McAfee and, and Citrix and things like that. These are companies that literally moved the world in different areas of, of what they were doing. Um, and one of the areas that, you know, really got me early on in my career was when I was with Tripwire in Portland, um, it, you know, in 1999 and 2000, in those days, we were one of the very first companies that were using the RIM-based two-way pagers um, that were essentially where you finally could, you know, connect to your e email, your exchange server, and you could you know, be sitting on a boat in the middle of the Columbia River like I was responding to customer emails just as if I were sitting um, at my desk and things like that and not have to do it with a laptop and dial up and VPN and everything. And those were, that was a technology that like really changed the world that early on. So when I had a chance to join, you know, a company like Good Technology um, or, you know, then was bought by BlackBerry and, and being part of that world, um, those are really big things. Um, you know, fast forward to where Corellium is, we are, um, it's a very unique approach to solving a big problem that's out there in the security space with regard to mobile devices or IoT devices and how we can do security research and testing and functional testing as well as vulnerability research and exploit development, all these kind of things. These, these, mobile devices are really kind of these heavy walled gardens and you have to be able to kind of break through those some those barriers. Um, and Corellium offers a way to do that with virtualized devices. And it's quite literally so, you know, game changing in this world that there's a lot of people that can't really do their job without a solution like this because otherwise you're going to be, you know, under the restrictions of the, of the device manufacturers. So, you know, it was something that was um, really exciting to me to jump in at an early stage where I could help bring, you know, that revolution out to the world where, you know, we're, we're in the business and our customers are in the business of making mobile phones and mobile apps and things like that safer because they're able to do the level of research and find vulnerabilities and find um, you know, issues that could be exploited by third parties or nefarious people and building defenses for those before they get discovered by other people. So um, it's an interesting place to be um, with a product that is really, you know, the only thing of an ex existence in the world. Yeah. Okay. So you knew that this technology existed. They came onto your radar. Did you approach them? Did they approach you? Like where, where I am in my head is, <laughs> did they know they needed a chief evangelist or was this something that you introduced as you're kind of talking about what, uh, what uh, um, an arrangement could look like? Well, what they really needed was the other half of my title, which is they needed somebody to take product management and bring products to the market. You know, traditional you know, marketing, go to market planning, um, you know, a build, you know, a release coming out. It's got these features in it. They need somebody to talk about it, to build the data sheets and the solution guides and all the fun stuff. So you know, if you think about kind of my day to day, it's, it's kind of half, you know, traditional product marketing. It's, it's building data sheets, writing copy for the websites and those kind of things. And then the other half is like, okay, we got this cool new feature. Now teach people how to use it. Why do you use it? What's it good for? What's it going to do for them? All those kind of fun things and do it with, you know, video tools or other technology that allows us to demonstrate that. Um, so there's kind of that balance between those two aspects. You know, sometimes I'm just heads down writing copy and, but then sometimes I'm, you know, sitting in front of the camera or doing, you know, webinars and that more kind of public outreach kind of aspect of, of everything. I would assume that we're still in the timeline, just the way you talked about the solution um, at a very high level, um, that this is probably still an aha moment zone for people like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've been waiting for a solution to this problem and, and uh, Brian has introduced me to it. Are we still in the aha moment 
zone for a lot of people? Um, we are. I think we're also probably a little bit even before that. So we're, you know, people in enterprises and businesses and things that are in, you know, the, the mobile application pen testing space or the vulnerability research space or things like that that are looking at security issues on mobile devices um, know that they're running into roadblocks of being able to, you know, just do something simple like getting data from these devices at a level where they're able to, to determine whether there's a security issue or not or being able to intercept network traffic and, and other things like that that we take for granted on the desktop world. We can do that stuff relatively easily, um, you know, on a standard Wintel box, but it's not as easy on a on a mobile device. So, you know, we were we were faced with issues like that back in my McAfee days, um, where it was really expensive for us to take. We had rooms, just rooms full of these little tiny, you know, the cheapest desktops you could buy, and you would basically um, fire up hundreds of these things, and you would do some malware testing, and then you'd have to come by with your crash cart and restore each one of these physical, you know, PCs back to a, a known good state. And then along came a technology called VMware, which changed the whole world. And if you think about where we are now with, you know, cloud computing and things like that, it was all because of this concept of virtualization, which is taking one physical piece of hardware and turning it into dozens or hundreds um, and spreading the resources out on that system. Well, we're basically doing exactly the same thing for mobile phones. So think about, you know, what you might have today is a rack of physical iPhones and Android devices all stacked up with plugs in the bottom of them, and and you're trying to do research on that. And again, you're you're back in this twenty or thirty year old problem where, yeah, once you do something on this device, now you got to blow it away and restore it, and take you know it takes hours of time to do these things. Um, or, you know, if, let's say you're a remote worker um, and you got to now take one of these devices and ship it to your teammate in a different country um, so that they can do their research. So these problems were solved, you know, 20 years ago on, on the, you know, the, the x86 platform. But it's a new problem that we haven't, the world hasn't solved yet for the next generation of devices, which are ARM-based, not Intel-based but actually ARM CPU-based. And so Corellium, that's what Corellium has built, is essentially the virtualization platform that allows researchers and testers to virtually build iPhones and Android and other IoT things, which is kind of cool, in a virtual world where they can be set up and destroyed and reset and snapshot and all this other kind of stuff, making it much, much easier and more efficient to do the level of work that security researchers need to do. So that's kind of where we are. The thing is, is, is that everybody's in this world today where, you know, the, the default go-to is to go buy a bunch of physical devices and stand them up in a lab. And nobody ever really thinks about, well, what if there's actually a better way to do this? Um, and that's where, you know, they start hunting around for certain things and they come across Corellium or they go to one of our webinars or they see us at a trade show or something like that. And then, yeah, you get your your kind of aha moment when I can go in and into the web interface and go, oh, give me an iPhone 15 Pro Max running, you know, 17.1, jailbroken, out of the box, booted up and, you know, be doing a test here in just a few minutes rather than having to go, you know, to a store and physically buy them and all that other kind of stuff. So we are, most of the people that we talk to, they're, they already have these tools and techniques and procedures in place with physical devices. And we're coming in and showing them that there's actually a better, more efficient way. And yeah, there's, there's several aha moments that can actually happen in that first 30 to 45 minute call. Um, and then, and then at that point, it's just, uh, um, you know, figure out how to make some of the tactics work. Really good. Did they, uh, so they obviously the, the team knew, uh, that they needed product marketing. You said I can do that. Um, 
Did you introduce the evangelism language? Was that something that they were aware of? Like, how did that come together? And um, what kind of grace do you have to split your time and attention that way? Is it is it like a, a well-understood and agreed-upon dynamic? Well, so um, as many roles in kind of enterprise, you know, vendor security space, um, your network is, is a key thing. So I already had... Um, you know, the, the person who actually introduced me to Corellium was a was a previous uh, manager of mine who knew that, you know, basically I could come in and, and hit these different roles um, well. And and so that's, you know, how I got involved in it. Um, it was, I had been searching for something for a while and it was something that was kind of on my radar because again, of that kind of extended network, both on at the board level and at the, you know, the tactical level within the organization. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, kind of when I came in and I said, look, this is, you know, I understand what, what you're trying to do, what, what this tech could do for the world. And I think you need a mix of both just kind of the tactical block and tackle of getting the, the assets required, the salespeople need the, you know, literally the physical PDFs to hand out or, during calls or at trade shows or the website, you need the, you need those assets built. Um, but then you also need people to talk, you know, about the future, about where it's going, about what's going to happen, what the roadmap looks like, um, and tell the bigger story and then decide, you know, you, you can have, um, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. We don't really have a product per se, like you can't really shrink wrap it and put it in a, in a box and go, that's what you're going to buy. We have more of, of this massively cool tool chest full of tools. And it depends on the the customer of what are they trying to do that decides what that tool chest actually is. So it's not like we're it's not like we're a mechanic or we're a carpenter or anything else, but we all share kind of similar tools. But you could use us in a lot of different ways. And so it's it's kind of that marriage of what the customer is trying to do in their job, and then how we can make our different set of you know tools line up to help them facilitate that. So it's an interesting piece of, you know, not just all out, you know, evangelism, you know, getting on stage and telling the stories and being a talking head and things like that, kind of like what I was doing um, at Silence with with my friends like Stuart McClure uh, and doing things like, you know, RSA keynotes. It's more of like really getting down to figuring out what the customer's trying to do, what they're, what they're blocking issues are what's stopping them from doing what they're doing or what's really expensive in their, you know, what are they wasting a lot of time on and coming up with ways like, okay, this is how you could use this toolbox with this set of tools to solve that problem. And then this drawer with this set of tools does this problem. Um, and so it's, it's kind of an interesting um, thing to sell, which makes it fun at the same time as also makes it kind of difficult because again, there's not that, you know, holy grail search term that you can go and go, oh, that's what I want. It's more of, you know, you've got this tool of, you know, here's a box and it has a whole bunch of stuff in it and you can do whatever you want with it. Um, and it's really difficult sometimes for customers to see that and go, well, I could do this or I could do that. So we need to be more, you know, prescriptive and, and tell stories of like, okay, if you're going to do malware research on mobile devices, you need these set of tools. If you're going to do pen testing, you need these set of tools. If you're doing vulnerability research in the iOS or Android OSs, you need this set of tools and, and they're all part of this toolbox. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of Chief Evangelist, let's get back to it. Yeah, so I, I the key phrase that I heard there um, that I that I want to double back into is is bigger story or bigger narrative because you got to use cases, which is certainly helpful in this context. Like, oh, I didn't, I never thought about doing that, um, and so to like helping people understand the potential of the tool set. 
uh, is a thing. But this bigger narrative, um, I'm gonna, it's, I'm not really probably even gonna formulate this into a question, but um, you know, I heard you say earlier that you really like to be on the front end of things. You want to be a part of uh, of an emergent, transformative technology. Um, and I feel like that's probably a personal passion thing for you. Yeah, it is. I don't, and and then and then this other idea of the bigger narrative is like, yes, I can map your situation. I can do some discovery and diagnosis with you on what you're trying to do and give you some solutions, like use case, like smaller stories. The way I think of use case, um, mm -hmm. but you're going to share this in the context of this bigger narrative. Talk a little bit about your own personal motivation and excitement around this, and perhaps also the role of the bigger narrative. Like, why is it so important? Um, for you to A, have that opportunity uh, in your day-to-day -day and week-to-week, -week, but then also for the customer to kind of understand. That one's a little bit more obvious, uh, but speak to that however you wish. Yeah, I, th I think, and it's it's one of the key things that that as an evangelist, you, you, you really, you have to believe in what you're doing and you have to really believe in what the product or the services that you're building are. Um, it, it's what drives you when you wake up in the morning. It gives you the reason to go to work. It gives you, and if you look at, at any technology company out there, it's going to be broken. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be filled with bugs. It's going to be messy from time to time. But what, how you get through that and how you get over that is you believe in what you're doing. You believe in the concept. You believe in the leadership of the business. You believe in where it's going and it gets you through your day. It's the reason you get up in the morning. And I think probably the biggest shift I ever had in my career was when in 2015, when I got a chance to join um, with an ex-McAfee um, employee, Stuart McClure, got to join him at a company called Silence. And we were the first ones to use AI and machine learning to essentially take out malware. And we were able to predict malware events years before the engineer ever even thought about writing the code for that ransomware or whatever. And, you know, the vision there was, you know, everybody else's vision is to like, let these cyber attacks happen and stop them after a certain period of time. And after you've gathered enough information to like who it is, why they're doing it, what they're gathering, and we were all about just stopping it before it ever even started. If we could prevent it from the before it would ever even begin, then there isn't any of this mess to clean up. And it was just a totally different way to look at it. And rather than using these, you know, huge conglomerations of different technologies to like, you know, it's 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 like the difference between using, you know, video cameras in your business versus, you know, locking the door. Um you know, the, the goal is to, is to, is to prevent it. Or, you know, I, I use the analogy a lot of, you know, somebody comes into the emergency room and, you know, they're, they're bleeding profusely. Um, our job at silence was to stop the bleeding. We didn't care if it was a knife wound, a bullet wound or who it was caused by or whatever. And it was different than what everybody else in the industry has been doing. And it's actually still doing is, you know, they're, they're letting the patient bleed out on the table while they're watching to see, okay, well, is this a knife wound or what kind of knife is it? Is it, is it a gunshot wound? You know, and they're just worried about all this other stuff when your victim is essentially, you know, dying on the table. And that's, that's one of the things that really got me excited about silence was the job was to prevent these events from ever happening in the first place thus limiting the number of victims in the world. And when we were selling it, man, it was really easy to sell. The customers were so protected. They just, they loved it because they didn't have problems anymore. And, you know, when you have, you know, C-level executives come up to you and say, because of what you guys built, I can now coach my, you know, son's little league team again. I can now sleep on the weekend. You know, these things help, evangelizers like myself become believers in the technology. Oh, this stuff actually works. It's really doing something important. And, you know, then you can take that 
And as you know, the evangelism part of this role is to portray that belief to others and create believers in in others and create a community of believers. And so that's a big part of what this role is. And again, the same thing happens at Corellium. There are things that we can do, like today, giving you a brand new iPhone 15 Pro that is virtual with a jailbroken version of iOS 17 that doesn't exist in the physical world. We can give you that device, you know, in minutes on a virtual platform, and you simply can't do it in the physical world. You don't have access to it. So those like those compelling moments, those those abilities to give, you know, your customers or the world something that just doesn't, that isn't just noise like everybody else or, you know, is completely something that is, you know, if you study the, the blue ocean and the red ocean, you know, type of thing, go fight in the blue ocean. That's where it's more fun. Don't, you know, don't get in a, in a telephone booth and knife fight with your competitor. Go find something that is completely, you know, new and unique and solves a, a different problem for the world, not just, you know, there's another Me Too product that, that you know, you can find on a shelf at Walmart. Yeah, really good. The, um, the customer side of what you were sharing around how the, um, this greater narrative, the, the transformative experience, the belief that you have around it, um, and how that helps you persevere in, this, in the face of all the problems we know we're going to have. We don't know when, we don't know what, we don't know how long, but we know we're going to have problems. Nothing is perfect. And um, I've observed in my own experience, and I'd love for you to share uh, your own, um, that that shared belief with our customers. So so you're sharing it as, you know, as a team member, this, this helps me. It reminds me why I'm getting up every day. It reminds me why I'm getting through these challenges. I've found that it helps customers when they share that belief stick with you through the the bad and the ugly, not just the good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, I think in in you know a lot of my roles over the past you know, over my companies, um, I end up filing as many bugs as a lot of the QA people do because we're using the product as the customer uses the product, not necessarily as engineering writes it and builds it and QA tests it, but we're using these, you know, because we're doing use case, like we, you know, bring up that word again, use case, right? We're going through different paths of code than, than what our normal, you know, engineering and QA testers are testing. Um, but we're much more aligned with what the customers are actually doing. So if you're, you know, in the tech like I am, and you're not finding and filing bugs, then then there's something wrong, um, because you know this is this is just the way that this that this role works. Is your hands are in the tech, but your hands are in the tech the same as the customer. So, like you said, Ethan, it allows you to establish that rapport with your customer that you're there too, and you're fighting on you know behalf of them. In fact, a lot of the times I talk when I'm out, you know, with with my customers, I'm their advocate within our company. You know, they've got their account manager they can work with and they've got their support reps they can work with. But when they need an advocate, somebody to listen to them and to help them through this problem and get over this bridge, maybe provide a little bit of, you know, quote, escalation or whatever needs to happen. That's that kind of rapport that you can establish with that customer that does help you in the long term, get those longer term, um, you know, uh, opportunities and engagements with customers. And essentially, you know, you're, you want to be really tight with the users of your product. You want to understand how they are using it, why they're using it, um, all the different things that they're doing, because you know that's really going to help you turn that person into a champion within that organization. They're going to carry you, and a lot of times, you know, those people they're going to move off into another company and a different role and things like that. And then they're going to remember you. They're going to remember what you did for them there. They might bring you into that company or whatever. So, you know, again, it kind of all goes back to, you know, we're always selling no matter what we're doing. We're always, always selling, but we're selling at a different plane, a different level of existence than what, you know, a traditional sales person is going to have a conversation about, Again, we're selling the relationship. We're selling the business. We're selling the 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 value, the outcomes. We're not selling the the skew and the price. 
Yeah, really nicely done on that tie back to the beginning. I also love your use of the language advocacy. Um, I've certainly been tapped to escalate things, or I've also been involved. Uh, I've never worked on a product probably as technical as most of yours, but certainly been roped into investigate. Hey, this is what I'm experiencing. This doesn't seem right. So you investigate it and you can elevate it. And there is something really unique too about you being or me or any other evangelist being slightly untethered, at least in this context from like day-to-day operations in a way that, you know, an account manager or customer success manager or even a salesperson, you know, they have very specific operational obligations and and generally standard operating procedures, um, broadly speaking, whereas uh, most of the evangelists I talk with are essentially free agents inside the organization and their their um, their credibility, their authority, their typically their duration with the company or at least with the market um, and the type of the customer, they have tr- enough trust around them that they can spend their time in ways that people in a, in a more lockdown role can't. Um, and that creates some of this, this loyalty and um, rapport and relationships such that you'd be carried. Now, of course, that also happens for good account managers too. Like, yeah. you know, my main contact, this company went to that company. Um, I guess talk about that dynamic a little bit. How much discretion do you have in terms of, uh, I mean, obviously you have some deliverables. We have, you know, these two launches on these two dates. And so we need, you know, this is a level A and this is a level B. So we need all these assets for the A. We need a little bit less for B. Um, you know, here's the go live dates on the various things. I mean, you obviously have a lot of that burden um, or opportunity or challenge, whatever, like a little frame it positively. You have those uh, responsibilities and opportunities. Um, How much discretion do you have to do some of this other, um, does does the language free agency resonate with you at all? Or or has Um, it in other roles or companies? It does. And I think um, it does, it takes a, it takes an, interesting individual to you know a lot of a lot of the way i think discussions have started around evangelism roles is we know we want you but we don't know what we want you to do and when you come into a job with zero job description really um it's like you know we want you to help marketing figure out what to do um, those can kind of be terrifying for a lot of people. Um, so a lot of times, like you said, the, the tactical stuff of, you know, these are the block and tackling things that we need done. We need these documents written. We need, we need these types of things done, um, is a good way to kind of ground you in your weekly, you know, when you're looking at your week and scheduling your time and things like that. Um, the free agency part is an interesting thing because a lot of, a lot of what an evangelist in in my role would be doing sometimes is, you know, there's the things that you have to do, and then there's the things that you could do or want to do, and that are those are things that are maybe a little bit longer term. Um, you know, we want to go do this type of an event thing or something like that, and it's going to take time to think about how we're going to do this. Um, Back in my silence days, um, Stuart and I used to do hacking exposed type of things where I would work with our incident responders and I would, you know, figure out like, okay, you guys were out and you helped this customer, you know, get this attack stopped. Help me recreate that attack so I can teach people how to basically do that. I can, I, I can, you know, basically reverse engineer an entire, you know, attack on an organization turn it into, you know, use different tools in those places that our, you know, security people can get access to and then teach people how to build it. So, you know, from like a weaponized Word document, you click on it and it blows up and installs ransomware and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we would take, you know, those entire like attack chains and turn them into educational experiences where we're actually going to these conferences and teaching people how to like recreate this attack so that you could better understand the thought processes of the attackers. You could tech test your own technology to see if it was stopping it. You could use it, um, you know, on with your employees to help educate, you know, send them something that looks fake, but, uh, but it's, you know, real and does things. 
there's all kinds of things to do in that type of like what you call the, you know, the, the free thinking side. Um, but again, it all comes down to tactical. You can't just spend all your time, um, you know, thinking about what you could do or what you want to do. It all has to come down to deliverables that get delivered and, and execution. And I think that's the biggest thing. And that's where when you have that experience of here's something we could do that might be really cool and then you actually deliver on it and deliver a video or a, or a production. And you're kind of a, you know, a lot of times in evangelism, we're kind of a one person production house. Um, we're building our own videos. We're doing our own video editing. We're doing our own voiceovers. We're not relying on the traditional machines of, of marketing. They're, you know, they're busy doing their, you know, like you said, their day-to-day tactical things. They're doing their stuff. But, you know, when we can come in and, and kind of have, like a one person show, then you're, then you're can deliver this content without having to rely on anybody or having to wait for other people. And that's kind of the stuff that happens is you get like these inspirational things. Maybe you're talking with a customer and they, they, they used your product in some weird way, or they saw something that, that was interesting. That sounds interesting. I want to go talk about that on a one hour webinar. Let's go do it. And you know, you got to build it and rehearse it and, and engineer it and do all those other kind of things. But once it's done, you've got these great assets that you can use. And that's where like the power of evangelism really kind of comes in is the what could we do with our technology and what are our customers doing and how we can get other customers to use to, to you know, to kind of light up those ideas and, and use the use it in the same way. So, you know, again, yeah, you know, when you've got dual titles like I do, there's there's part of my week that is just normal type of stuff. I'm in these meetings, I'm, you know, helping solve these problems, but then I've got the other half of my week, which is, you know, my brain's going like, well, how could we talk about how to use this and this role and put together a video and do it all, you know, in one day kind of thing and hammer it out and be done with it. Um, and that's where you get, you know, you know, you get to be a professional when you can just execute and you deliver these things time after time after time. Yeah, and the opportunity recognition it requires to, you know, make that editorial decision, this is worth doing, or I could do this with that information, I could do this with that story. Just that, you know, where does where does all of this belong? There's a lot of um, uh, editorial decision-making that an opportunity recognition that comes from the level of experience that someone like you brings to the role and the opportunity in the company. I'm sure as someone who has carried an evangelist title um, for a, a period of time, um, that people have asked you about it. Like, what the heck is that? Um, uh, or do we need one of those? Like, um, how do you describe maybe at a very high level what it is and how would you help um, a leader uh, determine whether or not um, evangelism is right for them and or even what to look for? Um, or is it, as you already said, I think we both have said it in different ways, um, I know I want you on my team. I'm not sure exactly how to leverage you. Uh, and, and you Anyway, advice for people um, who are curious about evangelism and whether or not it's a good fit for them and their company, their product, their market, et cetera. Yeah. I, to me, I think where you really need somebody, you know, an evangelist type role or something like that, um, you'll, you're going to have some telltale signs in in the business that are, that are going to kind of go, okay, I think we need this kind of role. One of them is if you are a young company and you're trying to bring something revolutionary to the world, um, doing that is going to require a lot of um, technical to value prop type of work. Um, and a lot of times people lean on the CTO to do that type of thing, but eventually you're going to run out of bandwidth, right? You got one person and if, and if it's a young enough company, you know, kind of like Corellium, you need those people focused on the R and D aspect. You need them keeping the product moving forward and making the right decisions there, not all the time being involved in telling the story of, you know, who you are, what you are, how you do it and why you're different. You need, you know, you need more people doing that kind of thing. So again, like I said, in, in some companies, you'll see these kind of evangelist roles be 
in the office of CTO. They'll be called field CTOs or or you know other types of things like that. And that's really just a different name for a technical evangelist who is, you know, going to have, you know, some of that type of ability to communicate that way. Um, having the chief evangelist kind of title, having that kind of it's it's kind of it's not really a C title unless the organization wants you to kind of be in that in that you know C suite with them, uh, and I've been in some of those organizations where you're kind of there because it, it really helps. Um, but really, it really helps when you are meeting with customers. It helps you know your salesperson bring in higher level people within that customer. If you're bringing you know a CTO or a field CTO or a chief evangelist or something like that in. So early startups that are trying to do something, you know, pretty revolutionary need that. Um, established companies who are trying to do um, paradigm shifts, if you will, or very established markets where you're trying to do big paradigm shifts, like at Silence, we were, you know, we were in a 20 plus year market of AV, you know, antivirus, and we were going to do it completely different than it has ever been done before. So that type of revolutionary paradigm shift, you need people that can talk at a technical level, but also be able to prove and show people, even sometimes hands-on, how that new, how that old paradigm is holding people back. And 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 you need to move into the new, into the new world. And so that's a really important aspect of it. So you've got early phase, you know, kind of startups where, you know, you're, you're starting to use your CTO maybe too much on the public side and need to, you know, refocus them back internally, um, where you need somebody to kind of take that ball and run with it, be available for all the sales calls, all the marketing events, all the stuff like that, come up with the ideas of how to demonstrate the product, how to do that. And then you've got established companies or established, you know, paradigms that your company is trying to shift and trying to change. That's when that's when you kind of need the the over, you know, overarching, you know, kind of evangelism type of of stuff where you're you're talking more about the outcome of of your approach versus, you know, you're just another tool in the same in the same kind of toolbox. Nicely broken down and I would generalize it to say old world new world, old way new way. Yeah, if that's part of what you're doing, you probably. I think if you look at it as a as a matrix, yes, that's that's the kind of the pieces I think that that fit in the best. Yeah, and we also hear too very often that um, the CTO in technical organizations like Urine is very often the CEO in other companies, and they are already evangelizing. They are casting this narrative, this vision. Why should you come work here? Even though we don't have uh, much revenue or many or any customers, um, fundraising. Um, et cetera, like all, I mean, there's the CEO is selling this vision um, and the promise of something that doesn't quite exist yet. Um, and eventually they either uh, run out of the skill set or the bandwidth to do it. That's it's another thing, too. You have, you have a different skill set than the CTO as well um, because you've done this uh, before. Um, this has been great, Brian. I really appreciate you t- making time for it. Uh, before I let you go, though, I would love to know something that you evangelize in your own personal life. <laughs> something that I evangelize in my personal life. Wow, that's a... Or perhaps you've been accused of evangelizing by people close to you. That's a, a stumping thing. Like, like, what do I... And it's it's kind of funny because that's literally the same question that I ask people that I look to hire. I'm like... I don't care what it is. I want you to pitch to me something in your own life and, and you know, create a pitch, sell me on it. Um, you know, I really, there isn't really anything that's coming to mind right now that in my personal life I, you know, couldn't do without, um, I guess. Um, By the way, uh, that's a very healthy way to live. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, my, I think probably for me, you know, if I think about, when you think about what you're evangelizing, um, it's something that you have to be passionate about, you, like deeply to your core, passionate. And and for me, 
Um, it's not technology, which is actually funny because I have, you know, I have a full rack data center sitting over here and I've got all kinds of stuff at my office and um, I'm, I'm actually tearing it down and moving it right now. Normally behind me, there's, you know, 30 year old, 40 year old machine computers that, that my, my boys and I, you know, buy and refit and, and fix them back up and play some of these old, you know, 1980s, you know, Macintosh and Apple games and things like that. Um, those, that's fun. But I think really for me personally, my family is just my biggest passion. I, um, I have strangely enough, like the lowest tech house that you could find because I spend my day, my work day living in tech. I don't want to go home and be in it. I, I don't, I just, I just don't, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I might be unique in that, you know, I have cat six wiring running over top of my chicken pen, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But, um, I really try to keep my personal life as low tech as possible. Yeah, me too. I, I feel like we buy a lot of things that are uh, solutions looking for problems. You know, yeah. I don't no need to overcomplicate anything. And by the way, uh, Load Runner does that do anything for you? Like, I played a lot of Load Runner on the Apple IIe. Yeah, Load Runner, and then of course you've got you know good stuff like Oregon Trail and um, on the Mac, you know Dark Castle, Beyond Dark Castle. Those are some of my favorites. And um, you know, we play the the like I said, my. Um, my kids, um, we limit screen time, obviously, due to, you know, issues with that. But, um, you know, a lot of them like to use, like, the old school black and white, you know, bucket Macs to do stuff. They can write their papers and they can print them, but they can't get on the Internet with them, which mean, which limits the, you know, the aspect of, of issues in the home. Um, but, yeah, like I said, we, you know, we, we, keep, we try to keep a low-tech lifestyle um, and... That's, you know, as far as like what is passionate, I think, you know, keeping your eye on the ball um, as far as a, as a, as a person, as a family person, that's, that's what, you know, leads a lot of the passion in, in my world. Wonderful. Well, I wish you continued success at home and on the job. I've enjoyed this very much. And uh, if folks have gotten to this point in the conversation, they may want to learn more about you or Corellium. Where would you send people to follow up on this? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn um, is is probably the easiest way. Uh, you can drop an email to me at br at corellium.com, um, one R, two Ls uh, in Corellium. Um, you can visit our website, corellium.com as well. There's some good stuff there about what we do and how we do it. And um, that's pretty much the easiest way to get in touch with uh, me or any of us here. Fantastic. And for folks watching and listening, I will link that up right down where below wherever you are watching or listening. Uh, Brian, appreciate you. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much, Ethan. It was absolutely a pleasure. Take care. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. -E -E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.